You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Welcome to Domecast, the political podcast from the News and Observer. Uh, this is Jordan Schrader uh, coming to you after a, a few weeks off from Domecast here. And uh, so we have a lot to talk about. And with me to talk about it all are Brian Murphy in Washington and here in Raleigh, Will Doran and Don Baumgartner Vaughn, who is the newest member of our political team, of our state team at the NNO. Uh, so welcome, Don. It's not your first Domecast, but it's uh, your first as a member of the political team. So uh, the first of many. Um, so let's talk about the um, uh, something that's become really a national uh, issue, and that is the abortion bills that are moving in legislatures around the country. And here in North Carolina, uh, the one that's moving is a little different than some of the, uh, the abortion bills that have gained major national attention. Um, but it's the uh, bill that deals with what happens uh, if an abortion is botched and a uh, uh, baby is, is born alive and what the doctor's responsibility is for. So, Will, tell us a little bit about um, what this bill does. Sure. So the bill, it's often referred to an infanticide bill, um, and it says that if a, a baby that was intended to be aborted uh, for, is born alive, uh, that doctors would be required to uh, provide care to it. Uh, basically, the insinuation is that um, the doctor or the mother would just kind of stand around and uh, wait for the baby to die. Um, and Republicans say that this is necessary, there's no protections stopping this from happening. Democrats say that's false, that we already have plenty of laws on the books that could stop this sort of thing, and that furthermore, there's no proof that this even happens. Um, and so it's kind of devolved from there. Um, and obviously there's, you know, emotional arguments on both sides of it. Uh, it passed the legislature. Governor Roy Cooper vetoed it. Um, and then it went back to the legislature to see if they could override his veto. This is really the first test of the legislature since the 2018 elections when Democrats uh, took enough seats to, to get rid of the Republicans' veto-proof supermajority in both the House and the Senate. So that means that since Republicans have lost that supermajority now, if they want to override a Roy Cooper veto, they not only need to make sure they have all the Republicans on board, but they're also going to need some Democrats to uh, either come over to their side or be absent when the votes happen. Because the, the rules for overriding a veto is you need 60% not of the entire House or the entire Senate, but just of the people who are there for that day. So the House overrode it pretty quickly uh, after Cooper vetoed it. Uh, uh, one Democrat, Don Davis, uh, who represents a fairly rural conservative area out in, uh, in Pitt County um, and Greene County, uh, uh, he had a, a originally voted for the bill, and he also voted to override Cooper's veto of it. So that, his vote help was enough for the Senate to pass the veto override. The House, however, does not have the votes. Um, there are not enough Democrats who are willing to uh, basically side with the Republicans against the governor to overturn this in the House. So they're going to have to, if they want to override this and actually pass this bill into law, uh, essentially just wait for a day when enough Democrats are absent and Republicans aren't uh, to be able to have the numbers. Um, and so it's just, it's been something that, you know, leadership in par both parties have been paying attention to, trying to 
to make sure they you know, they've got the people there uh, at all times. So, do, what do you expect? Do you think that that there's uh, the the math is there for them to eventually succeed in doing this if there's a, a few Democrats absent or probably because it's a it's a fairly narrow margin. Um, uh, we, we were just joined by Andy Spay, our fact checker, who's telling me seven. <laughs> they need seven votes. Um, so, you know, that could be any combination. Because there were a few Democrats who voted for the bill originally in the House. So, you know, there could be a combination of if all of them are there and some of the Democrats who voted against it originally are absent. Uh, you, there's, you know, infinite scenarios, um, basically. So, um, Andy, since you're here, why don't you weigh in on this uh, uh, abortion practice? Because you've been trying to look at um, whether this happens and how often it happens. And um, so what are some of the initial findings along those lines? So there's a lot of discussion about um, how often infants are born alive uh, during an abortion or a failed abortion. Um, and there is not much data, but what there is um, – is a CDC report from a few years ago that tracked uh, births between, I think it was 2003 and 2014. And over that time, there are about 143 uh, births, and 97 of those, if I recall correctly, involved uh, complications. Um, but these are all instances where the pregnancy had to be terminated, uh, but at some point, the infant was, um, I guess, uh, uh, born. Uh, and so this is what most people point to as evidence of um, infants being born alive during an abortion. Now, there are about five or six states that also attempt to track this, um, and the ones with the most data are Minnesota and Arizona, and their reports don't offer much detail. So these instances that I brought to you, the 143, and then the 10 here and the 10 or so in these other six states, are instances where infants were born alive during the course of an abortion. What we don't know is whether or not uh, doctors um, in those cases or medical professionals did any wrongdoing, um, which is what the North Carolina's bill and other born alive bill targets. You know, they're trying to prevent the scenarios where a baby's born alive and then a doctor sort of neglects it to death or actively kills the baby. Um, in researching that specific scenario, uh, I've only been able to find two cases. One is the famous case of a Philadelphia abortion doctor, uh, Kermit Gosnell. There are lots of articles about him and movies even. Uh, and then there's another case in Florida where, I, f I forget the woman's name, but she went to a clinic for an abortion. The doctor showed up late. Uh, she ended up giving birth to her infant. I believe it was a baby girl. And then... At some point in the process, again, I, I think she was under some sort of medication. Um, her infant was killed by someone at the clinic after it was born alive. So those are two instances. Um, that's already illegal. That's right, uh, as Don says. Um, and But there are rumors um, that are across the Internet of, that talk about, um, you know, what typical practices are at clinics and, you know, there are secret recordings where people are talking about what might be done in cases like this. But the only hard evidence I could find 
where there were cases of doctors actively killing infants after they were born alive through an abortion, where those two, Gosnell and then the woman in Florida, um, there could be more. Those rose to the top of the Google searches. He's um, in prison anyway now, right? And he's in prison. And the person who, um, in the Florida case, I believe, is also in prison. So um, that's where we are. There's, you know, it's safe to say that uh, rarely uh, babies are born alive during the course of an abortion. But it's, uh, we, we really don't know how often, if at all, ever, that this happens outside of those two cases that I mentioned. What do you think about the, um, the criticism of this being, um, they're just doing this for like political, like, you know, re-election purposes and what's going on in the other states, the, the other um, Republican legislatures are. You're asking me what I think. I'm just supposed to report and not have <laughs> opinions. Uh, I would say that it's. What's your analysis? <laughs> my analysis is there are a lot of people who care deeply about this subject and want to close what they see as a loophole where babies could be vulnerable. Uh, however, I believe uh, that laws already protect infants in this scenario um, through re PolitiFax research and other research. Um, there was a born alive bill like this in 2002, which covered essentially the same scenario and said, hey, if you're born and you take a breath of air and you're on this earth, then you have rights. So, and that's what um, professors at Florida State and Duke told us. Um, sorry, I'm backtracking. So a lot of people care deeply, but I think with the Virginia governor's comments and then with a bill in New York, um, anti-abortion act, activists and Republicans saw an opportunity to, um, you know, put something on the table and create a wedge issue where they can get people, you know, uh, I would say mobile and active and involved in politics. Um, and so here we are all talking about it. So that's the, uh, the issue that's getting the most national attention right now out of the legislature. Um, the um, other big thing that we're watching for is, of course, uh, a budget. And uh, right now, the Senate budget is the main event. It's being written behind closed doors, and then it'll be brought out next week uh, for the public to see. We've already had the House budget, so we have some idea of what to look for and um, what kinds of things might be in it. Um, and we, of course, we've already seen Governor Cooper's um, proposed budget. So we'll have um, three different versions of this, and um, then the negotiations will begin. Um, but Don, what are you watching for in uh, the budget when it comes out from the Senate next week? Uh, it'll probably look a lot like the House budget. Um, Democratic Senator uh, McKissick said that, you know, it's the same party um, power, so it's going to look about what the other one did. There are a few things um, that people who are unhappy about the House budget are already asking for. The um, state retirees want a cost of living adjustment. Um, and some of them are talking this week about um, just how hard it is to live um, on their fixed income already as it is and wanting just anything at all and how you know they were pr um, promised that they would be taken care of in retirement and they don't feel like they are unless they have that, uh, that, that COLA raise. Um, also HBCUs uh, want, they've been told 
Berger's office told uh, them that um, there would be funding in the Senate budget for um, NCA and T's um, uh, doctoral program, but not as much as um, they don't know yet as far as funding, um, what they're calling just equitable funding for the HBCUs in the state um, versus the other, um, the other UNC system schools. How does the higher education funding work? Does, does historically black colleges um, get the different amounts than per student or um, you know, depending on their populations as from, from the other colleges in the state? Um, are they feeling like they've been shortchanged? What's the, what are HBCUs wanting? Um, some of it is just the funding streams. I think with A&T, they had like some sort of um, exception where they had funding and wanting it, e wanting it equal to what NC State gets. Um, and a lot, of, um, a lot of the state legislators are um, HBCU graduates, and they don't think that, um, that the whole General Assembly values that as much as the non-HBCUs. Uh, so I think part of it is just um, wanting the recognition about how valuable this is to the state and how, um, who it produces, especially A&T being the largest HBCU um, in the country and the number of engineers they produce and everything else. Um, so. um, what else are you guys watching for in the Senate budget? Will, what's, what do you have your eye on? Uh, one thing that uh, will be interesting to see is how they handle uh, raises. Uh, for instance, the House budget, when they gave uh, their raises to teachers, they set it up so that those would only go into effect um, in January, not at the start of the school year, but basically at the start of the second semester. And there was some criticism that they were kind of trying to fudge the numbers a little bit by, by delaying those raises for, for a semester. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if the, if the Senate signs off on that same strategy that the House did, um, which obviously you know, allows the, the dollar to stretch a little bit further, or if they uh, took heed of that criticism and decided that no, they want to give the raises for the, for, for the full school year, not just the, the second semester. Anything else you guys are paying attention to as we watch for a budget? Uh, I just think it's interesting that we're sitting here talking about the budget and we're waiting on the Senate's budget uh, and at 1040 on Friday, uh, Senator Berger, the Senate leader's office, along with Senator Harry Brown, one of the key budget writers, um, sent out a press release. This is, uh, it doesn't have their budget in it. But it says responsible. That would be big news. Oh, that would be big news, yes. But it says uh, it's sort of a pushback uh, to criticisms of just Republican-controlled budgets. They say responsible Republican budget and tax policies are working. North Carolina's policies have nothing to do with opponents' claim. North Carolina's policies have nothing to do with the economy. But then they, uh, in this email, praise uh, employment growth, GDP growth, per capita income growth. And so I just think it's interesting to point out um, those are the priorities here. Um, that's that's what Republicans care about. Um, sure, and, uh, and and that's I think their overall mission is to maintain those things. And their pitch to voters next year, it seems like, is uh, going to rely a lot on on the economy, and they're going to say that the tax cuts that they've passed over the since they've been in control uh, since 2011 have a lot to do with the economy. Um, Paring down regulations, we're seeing, um, as we do every year, another regulatory reform or deregulation bill 
um, our colleague Lynn Bonner wrote about um, the most one of the provisions, which was to uh, allow um, TVs and um, other electronic equipment to be um, thrown out into landfills instead of um, requiring them, be, them to be recycled. There's th there's things like that they do every year that um, deal with with um, not only taxes but regulations that um, that they're going to um, pitch as a way to sort of um, boost the economy. Um, the other pitch that uh, um, will be made next year in 2020 is in the um, Senate race. So Brian Murphy, do you want to tell us a little bit about how the primary is shaping up uh, for U.S. Senate, where um, Senator Tom Tillis is going to have to fend off a fellow Republican before he faces whoever his Democratic opponent will be? Yeah, and, and maybe more than one. Um, Garland Tucker, a Raleigh businessman, has joined the race officially. Uh, he's going to self-fund a lot of it at the beginning. Um, we'll see how much he's put in when the campaign finance reports come out. Um, Tucker is trying to run as a as a conservative and a non-politician, saying that while he, he did support Tillis in 2014, he actually donated to his campaign, but saying that while Tillis um, campaigned as someone who was a true conservative, that he hasn't backed President Trump um, more cl closely enough um, the way Tucker sees it. Um, Garland Tucker is being backed by Carter Wren um, and, and others. A former lieutenant governor uh, endorsed him yesterday. Uh, Senator Tillis may also have to contend with a challenge from Representative Mark Walker, which we've reported in the past that uh, Representative Walker has considered at least running against Senator Tillis. Those rumors are being stoked uh, once again. Uh, Walker has refused to rule out running against Tillis, although has made it clear that his um, primary objective is to get reelected in uh, his Greensboro area district. Um, but we could easily see a, a three-way primary, which would be a very interesting development, um, particularly since North Carolina is an important uh, state for the presidential campaign. And you would imagine that given the problems with the North Carolina GOP um, and, and the fact that the RNC is in Charlotte, you would imagine that, that the president and his reelection team would like uh, not to have to worry about a messy primary in the state as well. Well, let's take a quick break and then come back with headliner of the week. Stay with us. Headliner of the week, 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 headliner of the week. Who's hot? And we're back with headliner of the week. Uh, Andy Spade, do you want to go first? Who's your headliner of the week? Uh, I'm going to say all the babies that were at the uh, Cooper's announcement yesterday about parental leave. Uh, Cooper, so Tell us a little bit about what, what the governor is uh, doing on parental leave first. Uh, he is expanding parental leave uh, up to eight weeks for people in his cabinet uh, who give birth to a child and up to four weeks uh, for people who adopt or spouses of people um, who, uh, I guess it would be safe to say, mostly dads and others who didn't give birth but have a newborn or adopted child. So, so these are state employees. That's who, right. Who state employees the at the, uh, the Department of uh, Public Safety, uh, DHHS, places like that. Um, he announced this through an executive order uh, yesterday at the governor's mansion, and it was full of moms and babies, and it um, – was it was fun to watch as he made this announcement with babies cooing and screaming in the background. Um, just a different kind of uh, 
just vibe than we've had around here lately, uh, especially with, you know, all these talk about the Born Alive bills and things like that. It was a very upbeat uh, event, and, um, yeah. Uh, he I, got one to sc- scream out right on cue as he was announcing it, too. That's right. So he was he seemed excited about that. Um, all right, so babies uh, <laughs> at uh, Governor Roy Cooper's press conference. Uh, those are some politically involved babies. Uh, in the hat for headliner of the week, Will Doran, who's your headliner? Gamblers. Uh, we've had a couple bills uh, progressing at the General Assembly this year that have, I, I think it's fair to say, kind of uh, a surprising amount of support. We've seen some, some bills for sports betting, for fantasy sports regulations go down in flames in recent years or just not even be able to come up. Um, but this year, uh, there's, a, there's a bill that I covered earlier this week uh, that would create a gaming commission. And that sounds really boring. But basically what the commission would do is it would study what would happen if North Carolina were to legalize sports betting. Um, and it would also uh, clearly state that the state doesn't believe that fantasy sports are gambling, which would kind of allow for more entry of those into the market, and also possibly the taxation of fantasy sports revenues, which would mean many millions of dollars for the state. So people have some reason to like that. Religious groups are opposed, um, and then there are also some uh, some kind of power struggle issues with some of the Indian tribes who have casinos and uh, you know are are interested in expanding our gambling laws here, but also not interested in you know letting other people kind of move in on it. So th- there's all these different factors going into it, and it's really fascinating to just watch kind of the the push and pull, the give and take. Um, there's actually a really interesting article for any Panthers fans out there uh, that Sports Illustrated did, uh, written by Jonathan Jones, a former Charlotte Observer Panthers writer, about uh, basically the, f- the future of sports betting in North Carolina and the Panthers and how that kind of plays into how the Panthers are thinking about you know moving some of their facilities down to South Carolina because they're kind of hedging their bets, to use a gambling term, on uh, which of the Carolinas is going to be the first to legalize um, sports betting. So... Uh, people who are interested in that, check out my articles, check out uh, that SI article. Uh, it, I don't know that anything's going to happen super fast, but it appears that it has more momentum than really it's ever had. All right. Don, who's your headliner of the week? Going with, not Will's theme, but with uh, Andy's theme of youth, um, I'm going to say the, uh, the North Carolina public high school students who came uh, to the legislature this week who were brought here, uh, who immigrated here um, as kids and a lot of them don't remember coming over um, from other countries and who were lobbying for in-state tuition to go to college. And I met some of the students and some who are in college. Um, and it, I think it takes a lot of uh, courage to, especially with um, you know, the risks they have of um, deportation to show up um, in the state government and um, talk about like, who they are and why they, uh, they want to go to college um, in a way that's affordable for them and what they want to do for the state. So I'm going to say those, um, those high school students. Okay. Uh, students on DACA and other undocumented students who uh, are interested in a, a change of policy for in-state tuition. Uh, and one more, Brian Murphy, who's your headline? I'm going to stick with the theme of a broad group of people, and I will say uh, victims of Hurricane Florence and Hurricane Michael. Um, the Senate and Congress, the Senate and the House finally agreed with White House sign-off to a large disaster aid package that will impact uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida, 
Georgia, California, Missouri, lots of states that have been hit by natural disasters in the last year and a half. Um, a lot of money is going to be pouring into North Carolina, and as we've seen, um, there are definitely some holdups to that money actually getting to the people, and we'll certainly be monitoring how effective the government is at distributing it. But this has been a long holdup up here in D.C. between the Senate and the House and President Trump over how much money Puerto Rico should get. Um, and so it's nice that the Congress was finally able to, to reach an agreement and get that bill passed, and, and some money should be flowing to those affected by the hurricanes. Okay, and we've had uh, uh, other hang-ups at the state level, too, for hurricane recovery money. We just had, not very long ago, an, an audit on, um, that showed even Hurricane Matthew three years ago. We're still waiting for uh, a large uh, amount of uh, particular pot of that money uh, to go out at the state level. Um, so we'll, uh, we'll continue to follow that. Um, of course, I have to go with babies. Uh, uh, you know, that, that, that's, that's just an uh, obvious choice. Uh, so uh, the, the babies of the press conference are our, uh, our headliners of the week this week. And uh, that's it for Domecast. Uh, for Don Barngarger Vaughn, Andy Spay, Will Doran, and Brian Murphy, I'm Jordan Schrader. Catch us next week. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News & Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.